Purim is a day of tremendous joy, as I will talk about today. <clears throat> and there's a reason why it's a tremendous joy, you see. Now, most people have a certain understanding of Purim, which is tremendously superficial. I mean, if you really think about the story of Purim, which is obviously what the holiday is about, what does it encompass? It encompasses a hero, Mordechai, a heroine, Esther, and the uh, evil people, you know, the uh, people who want to commit genocide. You have Homan, and you have the Ahasuerus, uh, uh, who are bent on destroying the Jews, you see? And then it's a whole story. But when you think about the story, what does it seem like? It seems like the story is all about what? Hatzalah. That the Jews were threatened with genocide, which is the, the extinction of the entire Jewish people. And they were saved. Hatzalah. So when you look at the story, it seems to be a story of tremendous, uh, let's call it rescue. You see? That's what it seems to be. But that really does not add up. Why? Because in the Megillah it says, And to Jews there was Oira, which Oira means enlightenment, and joy. <clears throat> in other words, it should have said, if you think about it, To the Jews there was rescue, right? And joy, because they were not killed. But it doesn't say that. It says, Oiro. That is a tremendous clue as to what Purim is about. And that's what I want to talk about. What really happened on Purim? Uh, and as such, why it's such a great holiday. You see? Uh, and like I say, the clue is here, or the remes, is because it says, there was a tremendous enlightenment by the Jewish people. And therefore, there was joy because of that enlightenment. So we can begin to ask a whole bunch of questions. Right? And here they are. One, what then is the essence of Purim? Is it the Hatzalah, the rescue, from a possible genocide by two very villains, evil people, Achashverosh and Homan? Or is it about something else? So what is the essence? That's one question. You see. Another question is the halachas of Purim, which is interesting. Uh, why all of a sudden is there a thing called Mishloach Manas? That you have to give each Jew, you know, food, two pieces of food or whatever. Portions of food. You don't have that by any, any, any other thing. You see? So why did the Chazal enact Mishnah Manas? What does that have to do with Purim? Another question. Matanis Lev Yoinim. You know, it's a mitzvah to give every Jew, every day, tzedakah. So why all of a sudden is there a special mitzvah to give matanot, gifts, to the poor? That's another question. One. The concept of, of what? We have the concept of costumes. Why should we wear costumes on Purim? 
You know, what is this, Halloween? You know? Why are we, why are we, why are Jews all of a sudden wearing costumes all over? So that's another question. Then when you actually think about it, the name Purim is a strange name. Pur means a lottery, you know, in, uh, in Hebrew. So why do we name a holiday after the lottery? Now, we know that that's what Haman did. He pulled out different lotteries, you know, to determine what the best time to kill the Jews are, the month and the day and so on, you know. And he picked out Ador. So because he used lotteries to determine the best time to do his evil plot, kill the Jews, so that's why we named the holiday Purim? What does Purim have to do with this? What does that name have to do with this? You see. Then there's a concept called Adeloyota. There's a mitzvah to get drunk or to imbibe enough wine or liquor, whatever you want to do, right? Where you do not know the difference between Mordechai, Mordechai, Baruch Mordechai, blessed Mordechai, and Orohomon, and cursed is Homon. What kind of a mitzvah is that? A mitzvah to get drunk? until you don't know, you cannot distinguish between those two ideas, that's a strange type of mitzvah. Yet it is a mitzvah, Adelayoda. Also, the word Yom Kippur is Yom Kippurim, right? The Day of Atonement. But Chazal note that Yom Kippurim, Kippurim, that Yom Kippur is like Purim, but not Purim. Purim is greater. In other words, Purim is greater than Yom Kippur. Because it's a day Yom Kippurim, a day like Purim, but it's not as great as Purim. Why? It's a very, very difficult chazal to understand, you see. Also, what also really doesn't make any sense is that the name of God is missing in the entire Megillah. It's not mentioned once. Only in an allusion where Mordechai says to Esther, you know, that your job is to try to go to Ahasuerus and convince him to stop. And he says, and if you don't, then rescue and salvation will come to the Jews. means from another place, which obviously means God. But why did Mordechai say God? You see, then there's a question of, okay, so the Jews were saved. But do you know how many times in history the Jews were saved? Hundreds of times. So why make Purim a holiday? There were many times that the Jews were saved. So why should Purim be a holiday and not, not other times? In other words, how do Chazal know that Purim should become a holiday? You see? And all of these are very strange questions. And they're based on the halachas of Purim. Now we know that the halachas of a holiday, a Yom Tov, a festival, always indicates or points to the underlying reasoning, the primius, or primiyut, of a holiday. So what are we going to point to? You know, what, what, what do these halachas mean about Purim itself? You see... So I've asked a whole bunch of questions, you see, and how do we go about answering them? And the answer is the concept which I always use is tiferet, beauty. 
that if you understood the real essence of Purim, then every one of these questions would be answered with one answer. You don't need a whole bunch of answers to have a whole bunch of questions, answer a whole bunch of questions. The essence of Purim itself will answer it all. So therefore, what we need to understand is what is the essence of Purim? What is Purim really all about? And why are we so joyous? You see? That's a very important idea. But like I say, most people do not know the reason for Purim. They're familiar with the story. And like I said, the story seems like a story of rescue. Fine. We should certainly be joyous about that. Because Haman wanted to wipe out all the Jewish people. And what's interesting is that the last time in history that all the Jews were under one king was then by Ahasuerus. Because we know he was the king or the emperor of 127 different countries, provinces, or whatever. So therefore, that included every Jew on the planet. And therefore, he was the last one that could wipe out every Jew because they were all within his kingdom. After that, they began to spread out all over. So nobody could really kill all the Jews because they spread out in many different areas or countries. However, in Ahasuerus, he could have done that, and that's exactly what they planned to do. And that the question is another question. Why is this important to them? That this is the last time, right, that all the Jews were under one kingdom and theoretically could be wiped out by one king. Interesting idea. It's an interesting historical idea. Somebody seems to be washing dishes. Okay. Uh, in any case, so I've asked a whole bunch of questions. I don't know, 10, 11, 12, whatever. And we're going to try to answer it. Okay. What is the answer to all of this? The answer is a very interesting idea. <clears throat> and it goes back in history. What is the idea? Okay. Let's go back to the beginning of Matan Torah, <clears throat> when God gave the Torah to the Jewish people. He gave the Torah. Now, did the Jews accept it? And the answer is yes. In fact, they not only accepted it, but they accepted it with tremendous love and desire. We know because it says Nasa Vinishma. Nasa means we will do the mitzvahs. Vinishma, and then we will understand them. In other words, we are going to accept what God gives us unconditionally. So that we know. But there's a very strange midrash where it says that all the Jews with Tachasahor were underneath the mountain. And Chazal learned from here that what God did was a very strange event. He took Mount Sinai, this huge mountain, and he broke it off its base. He lifted it. Imagine a mountain being lifted in space. And he put it over the heads of the entire Jewish people and said, God said, if you accept the Torah, mutov, good. If not, then all of you will be buried underneath the mountain. He's not kill every one of you if you do not accept the Torah. What do we see? Is that the Jews accepted the Torah compelled under compulsion. But that doesn't make any sense because it says Nasa Vinishma. 
right, that the Jews accepted it lovingly. So why would God not do that? So Toysfos, in that place, answers the following, is that they accepted the Toysfos, the written law, with love. But they did not want the oral law. That's what it is. So therefore God said, you must accept the oral law, right? If not, then I will bury all of you under the mountain. This is the idea, which is interesting. Now you may say, Goyim could say, maybe Goyim could say what? That, uh, well, if you would have forced us, we also would have accepted the Torah. And it would seem that they have a good claim. But the truth is, they have no claim at all. Why? Because since the Jews already accepted the written Torah, so God says, it's not enough. I'm compelling you to accept the oral law. But the Goyim never accepted even the written law. And that God is not going to compel. You've got to accept something. And then he can compel you to accept all of it. But if you don't accept any of it, then he's not going to compel you because you have free will. You see? So for the Goyim to claim that is not a claim at all. But the question is why. So, like I said, Tosfos says that the Jews accepted the written Torah in a tremendous superlative way. But the oral law, they did not want. You see? And what that did was it created a pagam, a defect. It created a tremendous spiritual damage or defect in the, in the situation where the Jews had to accept the Torah out of love. Because they didn't. They only accepted out of love the written Torah and not the oral law. So that created a pagam. A pagam is a defect, a damage in the Kabbalah Torah. You, you see what I'm saying? Which is a very important idea. And that pagam was a very difficult pagam defect. Because what it meant is that the Jews did the oral law out of fear of death. That's not what God wants. He wants you to accept the oral law out of love, not out of fear of death. So this remained a spiritual, as I said, defect, a deficiency in the tikkun of the Bria, in the rectification of creation. And as such, it became a spiritual necessity to repair that idea. You see? It is a tikkun. Because once something becomes a spiritual necessity for the rectification of the Bria, then you need, if it's damaged, then you need to undo the damage. So, what's the Bershom going to do? And now we begin to understand. So, the question that we want to ask really is, why did the Jews refuse? Why? You know, they accepted the written law with love, what was the problem with the oral law? Well, one can think about that. But there is a thought which I feel is very true. When you look at the oral law, which is the Mishnayis, the Gemara, the Mishnayis, and so on, you will see that the Torah encompasses laws not only for spirituality, like Kotshim, the Beis Hamikdash, or Taharis, which is tumor, spiritual defilement, and so on, and also giving to the coin, which is, let's say, zeroim, truma, and mice, and so on. But there are many laws, for instance, the courts, 
you know, how to adjudicate claims against property and, 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 and loans and all that. What does this have to do with Ruchnius? You see, so what they said is the following, is we understand that the Torah itself is a path to Ilam Habo, yes, spirituality. But why do we need to have laws about clearly laws that deal with civilization? You see, what does it have to do with civilization? Every country has laws of civilization, or else the societies would never be able to be preserved. Obviously, if you don't have laws, civil laws and criminal laws, so if that's the case, right, then on the contrary, you'll never make it. You see? So civilization or societies needs laws, you see. And therefore, why do we need laws like that in the Torah? We could borrow them from different societies, you see? Or we could make up those laws based on what we feel to preserve the Jewish society. Why does it have to be part of the Torah? Why does it have to be a mitzvah which automatically makes it spiritual, you see, and it makes it God-given? This is what they didn't understand. There are so many laws, halachas, mitzvahs, that seem to be all part of the preservation of society. You see, what do we need that for? Every civilization has laws, and they don't have the Torah. So obviously they have to have it in order to preserve the society, you see? So this is what they felt. It's not that they, they didn't want felt, in many ways, have nothing to do with spirituality or what could be duplicated on their own. Why does it have to be a mitzvah from God, you see? In any case, this was the problem. The logic of the Torah Peh was the problem. And they really didn't want it. I'm not even talking about the fact that it adds enormous amount of conditions to the mitzvahs. I mean, there already are 613 mitzvahs. Could you imagine you have to add now the whole Shulchan Aruch or the whole Mishnayis, the Gemara and so on, to all those laws? It's humongous amount of halachas. You see. So, you have that, but I believe the main problem was the logic of this. Anyway, therefore they created what's called a pagam, a defect in the Kabbalah Satura. And God had to fix that up because that's part of the Tikkun. You see, what did he do? So he set up a historical situation that would play, take place 900 years later, and when I gave the Hanukkah shir, we know Hanukkah was also a setup. But in any case, Purim is another setup. What does that mean? It means God created a situation, basically, that he would want to masakain or matakain, to rectify the pagam, the damage or the defect that they did at Matan Torah. What was that? situation, that is the holiday of Purim, you see. That's what the essential idea of Purim is. It's a setup. It's a setup to re-examine why, what the oral law is, and then God was hoping, of course, that the Jews would now accept the oral law 
with love, and that will actually correct the tikkun. But how? What is the logic of the situation? Well, here goes. Uh, what God wanted is that the Jews have to understand uh, that, of course, the Torah is spiritual, but a society cannot exist based on the laws of man, as we will see. The Torah is not only how to live in Ulam Habo, but it's also how to live in Ulam Hazer. Because the oral law itself is not just based on laws that society needs to preserve themselves. It is based on righteousness, morality, justice, you see, and what is right and fair. That's what the Torah is based on. Let, let's, take a, let's understand something. <clears throat> what is the origin of law? What is law? Law is the proper behavior, right, or the appropriate behavior that somebody has to do in a given situation. That's a law. What determines laws? And the answer is the preservation of society. So what laws are is really an agreement, a social agreement. It's a contract where everybody who lives in that country agrees to abide by the laws of that country. Why? Because that's the only way the society can exist, preserve itself, and flourish. For instance, if you don't have laws about property, guess what? Everybody's going to be stealing everybody else's property, right? If you don't have laws about marriage, guess what? Then immorality is going to be rampant. People, there was no such thing as marriage. People are going to take everybody else's wife. You see? You can't exist that way, you see? And there's so many other laws. You see, laws of, of, of monetary, of loans, of justice, of criminal law. You see, what determines what the law is? And the answer is, these are the laws that society feels that this will allow society to sustain itself, to preserve itself. That's the basis of the law. And everybody agrees to abide by that. So that becomes a law, you see. That's the Constitution, for instance, of the United States. It's a bunch of laws that will preserve the American way of life, you see, which is democracy, it's property rights, uh, it's independence, it's liberty, you see. Uh, what do you call it? It's capitalism, where each person has the right to pursue his own way of finding happiness. This is the American way of life. The Constitution is nothing more than a law book, right, that enshrines these laws, how to do it, into a code which becomes binding on every citizen. You see? That's all it is. But think about that. There's a concept between legal and just. The laws of the United States are legal because that's the law. But justice is not the concept of law. Justice is the concept of reciprocity. If you do A, then what should happen to you is its opposite, called B. That's justice. The concept of cause and effect based on reversal or reciprocity. There are so many laws in mankind that may be legal because it's part of the legal system, but it has nothing to do with justice. It is a terrible law, and we know so many laws that make no sense at all, and it's not justice. You see, when they have Lady Justice, who is traditionally blindfolded, right? Of course she's blindfolded, because the laws of Lady Justice are not based on righteousness, 
spirituality you see and 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 what is the true fear way of having a law that's why she's blind her laws are just to preserve society and so on in any case this is the basis of all laws which is very very important but what's the flaw here's the flaw the flaw in all of this is that since all these laws are basically arbitrary they're arbitrary they're just there to protect the society but what happens if they can be violated what happens if the society will continue to be preserved and flourish by break and you still can break the laws and there are people that do this every day you see then the law will be broken so we realize something that any legal system is always subject to corruption why because of self-interest every politician which is a very important concept is doomed to be corrupt why because he has needs every politician has needs self needs you see but these are in conflict with the laws of the country you see a politician is not supposed to take a bribe but he wants the bribe because every politician wants what he wants money wants power wants fame and most of all he wants to continue being in power so of course he's going to be corrupt he'll take bribes you see because he has the ability and the power to do that so therefore his self-interest is in conflict with the legal system itself so if he can get away with it of course he will get away with it that's why there's always that's why there's always so many scandals in governments it's incredible what goes on you see because in the end they all fail you see and this is what we begin to see that the legal system or the laws of a country is tremendously flawed because not only many times are they unjust or unjust you see they can be broken all the time what god wanted to show them is that the laws of the torah are not based on preservation of society it's based on kedusha holiness righteousness morality you see that's what it's based on not based on a legal system that will preserve your society that's why it has to be observed because the Torah the laws of the Torah are right not just arbitrary to preserve the society and therefore they cannot be broken because there's accountability and God watches <clears throat> you see so what the version wants Christ to realize is the laws of the Torah are the right laws based on justice you see and that's why they have to be observed therefore the Torah is also a way to preserve society you see but it's not based on the preservation of society it's based on morality and righteousness and justice and holiness you see and therefore the Torah is not only a path to ilm habo the future world but ilm hazer this is the only way to survive in ilm hazer you see now how the Jews going to do that oh so now we begin to understand how is God going to make the Jews understand what is going on here you see and now we begin to understand he takes all the Jews all of them and that's why they all were on the Akash first 
you see? Because he wants every Jew to come to this realization. And what does he do? <clears throat> Puts them in a country, right? And you all of a sudden you have this guy, Homan. Now, I, I went into the last year who Amalek really is. I'm not going into that. But here's a guy, Homan, right? Who's angry. He's a megalomaniac. And he wants to commit genocide to the Jewish people. But he's not the king, right? He can't do anything. Even if he's the grand vizier, whatever. He's got to convince the king. So what does he do? He goes to Ahasuerus. And he says, he presents an argument. Why Ahasuerus should allow him to commit genocide. You see? <clears throat> now, Ahasuerus, of course, is thinking, what are you, crazy? They provide an enormous amount of money. Taxes. That's why Homan said, I will give you 10,000 talents of silver, which historians estimate to be worth $100 million in today's money. He was a very wealthy man. Super wealthy, Homan. Uh, so that would take away that fear. You know, you take away the tax base. Uh, but he convinces Ahasuerus to kill the Jews. Now, <clears throat> when the Jews heard that, what was the reaction? What's the reaction? The reaction is shock. First, why? What was the shock? Because the Jews were loyal citizens. They were patriots. The proof of that is the way the Megillah starts, that every Jew ate from the Sauda, from the meal of Ahasuerus. They were part of the country. They were loyal citizens. Like I said, they were patriots. They were tax-paying people. They kept the laws. They were great citizens. So why would Ahasuerus kill them? You see, they didn't, they didn't break a law. Just because they have their own religion, does that mean they should be subject to death? You see? What the Jews realize something, which is very important. They realize that the laws of a country is a fraud. All it is is to preserve the society. But if somebody can get away with it and break the laws, right, and society will persist, he'll break it. And for whatever reason, it was an Ahasuerus interest, self-interest, right, to break the laws. But since he's the king, right, so the Jews will die. So what? Persia's not going to disappear. So they realized what the nature of the law is, that the laws are legal. It has nothing to do with righteousness, justice, holiness. You see, nothing. And they realized what their Torah was, you see. Because if, if Ahasuerus could commit such an incredible act of treachery, right, betrayal of a citizen of a country for no reason, just to kill them because he's getting money, 10,000 talents of silver, you see? Or Homan offers an argument, you see? Is he crazy? What kind of king is this? Where is his responsibility to the citizens of his country? And the answer is, there is no responsibility, really, if he can get away with it. So they understood the flaw in the laws of civilization, you see. That if it can be what's called abrogated, removed, canceled, society will continue to exist. That's exactly what happens. And this is the case of Ahasuerus and Homan. So they were stunned. 
They were shocked at this realization. Then after they were shocked, then came the fear. Because if they're going to be slaughtered and killed throughout the entire country, that's bad news. But first came the shock, you see. Then came the fear, you see. And then after that came the realization, the enlightenment of what the Torah really is. That the Torah is not based on society. It is based on righteousness, justice, morality. It's based on the real concepts of how man should govern himself. So therefore, as such, it is part and parcel of the path to Ilam Habo, the future world. So that's what they realized, enlightenment, you see. But first they had to be saved, you see. And that's the beginning of the story. That's why they were all under one country at one time. Because God wanted every Jew to realize that and do tshuva. And that's what they did. The tshuva of Esther is not, why, it's not that they repented because they were afraid they were going to get killed. I'm sure there was an element of that. But the tshuva was unbelievably sincere. It was out of Ava because they realized that the entire reason for their observing the oral law was wrong. You observe it because you have to love what God gave and he gave you the, the, the true prescription of how to live in society and conduct yourself with your fellow man and how to conduct yourself with God. You see, that's what they realized. So they had shock, then fear, then enlightenment. Very important concept. And the tshuva that Jews did was avo. They did it out of love. Therefore, they reaccepted the oral law. And Chazal say, because it says in the Megillah, Kimu, they fulfilled the Kiblu, and they accepted. So the Chazal say, and this is the secret to the whole story of the Megillah, Kimu, they fulfilled the Kiblu, and they reaccepted the oral law. You see, because they didn't accept the oral law, it was placed on them as a threat of death. If you remember that God raised the mountain over the entire Jewish people and said, if you don't accept it, I will bury you under the mountain. That was an acceptance on the fear of death. But now they accept it out of love, out of realization. And that two words in the Megillah is the whole story. Kimu, the Kiblu. Kimu means they fulfilled the oral law, the Torah. The Kiblu, you see, that which they received but when they received it, it was a flaw, and now it was for real. That's it. That's the essence. And God had to arrange an entire story, you see, situation, that would bring the Jews to that realization. Now the question is, why then? And the answer is because in order for the Jews to realize what their Torah is, they have to see the laws of the Goyim and make the comparison. So all the hundreds of years the Jews were in their own society. You know, you had the Shloma Melech, you know, and so on. You had, uh, you know, the Nevi'im and so on, until they were exiled by Nebuchadnezzar. You see? When they were exiled by Nebuchadnezzar, then they began, they, they were exiled to Babylon, and then they lived in Babylon, so they could see the laws of Babylon. But the problem was, is they were not equals. They were slaves 
the first time, you see, that the Jews became free men and could live under the same laws, equality, was by Persia. So that's when God brought Haman in. He allowed the Jews to live in a country where they can actually experience being free men in Persia. And that's when he showed them what the laws are to them and to everybody as free men, free people in Persia. You see, that's why God waited 900 years, because he needed the Jews to live among Goyim to experience their laws, you see. <clears throat> now, so that's the essential story of Purim. That is the essence of Purim. Not only that, that also tells us many, many ideas. It explains our lochus. Because, one, let's take the first question I asked, or whatever, why do I have to give a gift to my neighbor? Because once Jews realized that they're in it for themselves, in the sense that they can't depend on anybody, because the laws of Goyim have nothing to do with justice, you see, it has only to do with preservation of the society, and therefore it's arbitrary. So they realized that, hey, we've got to stick out for ourselves. We've got we to do what? Reinforce brotherhood and love from one Jew to another, because there is nobody else that we could depend on. Can't depend on Goyim, you see? So Chazal said the best way to do that is if you give a gift to your friend, your neighbor. Because when you give a gift to somebody, automatically he has feelings of he likes you, you know what I'm saying? All of a sudden he feels close to you. That's what happens when you get a gift from somebody. You like the guy who gave you the gift. Uh, that's why you have Mishleach Monas. Where the Jews realize we've got to stick for ourselves, right? And therefore the way to engender tremendous amount of Avo, love from one Jew to another, is to give out Shalach Monas. You see? It's a brilliant prescription of how to do that. And it's the same idea of Matonis Levyonim. Right? You give a poor man the ability to survive, right? He's going to be forever thankful, won't he? You see? And that's what the Jews did. So they support the Evyonim, the poor people, give them the ability to survive. And of course, as a result of that, then the poor people will have a tremendous feeling of affection to you. You see? <clears throat> now, why Adela Yoda? Why do we have to get dr- drunk? Until we don't know the difference between blessed is Mordechai, Boruch Mordechai, and Oro Haman, which, by the way, is the exact same gematria. Boruch Mordechai is exactly equal numerically to Oro Haman. To Oro Haman. And the answer is uh, <clears throat> because God wants to show them, right, that based, and from our perspective, there's a hero and a villain. Mordechai is the hero, and Haman is the villain, and Achashverosh. <clears throat> but from the perspective of God, there is no such thing as hero and villain. Because everybody can only follow the plan of God. You see, and the plan of God was that the Jews should be threatened, all of them, and realize the nature of society, of Goyim, the society. You see, so God directs people. Now what he does do, he says, listen, if you follow my path willingly, then I will reward you. But if you f- do not follow my path, then I will punish you. But in the end, you should know, everybody must follow the plan of God. There is no free will to disturb or disrupt that plan. 
you see? But God will only allow you to get credit, right, or punishment. But everybody follows the plan, you see. That's why Adelaide, you need to understand that Purim is the story of God directing the Jews to do the Tikkun, you see? And the way you do that is you do not see the difference between blessed is Mordechai and cursed is Haman, because they are both agents of God, you see? Both of them. Even though Mordechai will receive reward, and Haman, of course, will be destroyed. But in the end, they're both doing God's work, which is interesting, you see. That's why there's a mitzvah of getting drunk. Next question, Yom Kippurim, Yom Kippurim. Why is Yom Kippur, or why is Purim greater than Yom Kippur? And the answer is because on Yom Kippur, why do we do tshuva? Because we are afraid of the judgment. Whereas on Purim, right, we did tshuva because out of love, you see, that's why. Very, very important idea, you see. Now, uh, why is Purim named Purim? Basically, to show you that everything is directed by God. Purim means lots. What is more under the control of randomness and uh, chance than lottery, right? But that shows you that this is not true. There's no such thing as chance or randomness. Everything is directed by God. And this whole story of Purim was directed by God. You see? And that means God is in absolute control. So the, the name of the holiday is what? It's Purim. Isn't that interesting? To tell you, Purim, there's no such thing as chance. It's all directed by God. And Purim's story is that, you see. Now, why did the Chazal make Purim a holiday? There were many times that the Jews were rescued. The answer to that is because Jews can be rescued, but that doesn't add to the spiritual necessity. Remember, Purim is because there was a tremendous pegam a defect or a damage in the spiritual tikkun. So when Jews rectified that by accepting God, you see, then automatically that was a new awe, a new light in creation that never was there before. Oh, once there's a new light, a new shefa, a new awe, right, that needs a Yom Tov because that never happened before, you see. Whenever Jews are saved, okay, that's fine. You see, they're saved. But it, uh, but it's, it, it, it doesn't introduce a new awe, a new light, a new enlightenment in creation. This one did, you see. It was a realization. Not only was it a Hatzola, a rescue, you see, but it was also the whole concept of what? Of enlightenment of what the Torah really is. Now you understand that all of this is a remez. You see, what's the remez? Because it says, It doesn't say, to the Jews there was Hatzolo, there was rescue, and therefore there was Simcha, happiness. No. The happiness was because of the enlightenment. To the Jews there was Oro, enlightenment, the Simcha, and happiness. And the Simcha, the happiness that the Jews experienced, you see, was because of the enlightenment, and therefore the tshuva was absolutely incredible, you see? So we now understand many, many things about Purim. 
You see, they're all answered once we understand the spiritual necessity of Purim. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> there is another important theme of Purim. Purim is something really, when you think about it, should never have happened. Why? Because Purim is Purim is filled with events that were purely based on chance, or that's the way it looks. I'm going to give to you a whole series of events that the odds of them happening were almost nil, zero. Yet each one happened one after the other. Okay? And you will see that Purim really is an impossible story. Let's go. One. Why would a queen, why would a king, Ahasuerus, ask Vashti to appear? And that's how the Megillah starts. There's a whole meal, and he asks Vashti to appear in front of the whole crowd, undressed, naked. It's incredible. Why? Who ever heard of something like that? First of all, she's his wife. Could you imagine that's what a husband wants from his wife to do? The second thing is she's the queen. Is this the way you bring honor and authority to a queen? And not only that, she was the granddaughter of Nebuchadnezzar. You see? She had a tremendous yichos. And not only that, he was a commoner. His whole claim to the throne or the crown was through Vashti. So how could he degrade Vashti like that? That never happens. So that's the first thing that is bizarre. Second thing is he had Vashti killed. Because she didn't want to do that, he killed her. Yeah, but wait a minute. She's his whole claim to the throne because she's Nebuchadnezzar's granddaughter. So is he crazy? That's his whole claim. He had her killed anyway. That's the second bizarre event. Third bizarre event. So he's now going to want to get married, right? Who's he going to marry? A commoner. Kings don't marry commoner, commoners. Basically, they marry royalty. You see, they try to marry somebody that is of royalty. This was the way it was done in the past. So why would he want to marry a commoner? You see, so that's bizarre. And next thing is a beauty contest. Kings don't hold beauty contests. What is this, a Miss America contest? They don't do that. You see, that's unheard of. That's why he's going to pick a wife. You see? The next bizarre thing is that Esther won. Do you know how many women vied for the desire to become the empress? It was unbelievable. What are the odds that she would win? You see? Now, the next thing, bizarre, is that of all people that was appointed as a grand vizier, is Haman. Right? Do you know how many people vie for that position? And all of a sudden, he's appointed the Grand Vizier. Next bizarre event is Big Son Viserish. Mordechai happens to be at the right place next to the king's palace where he sees two officers, Big Son and Seresh, plotting to kill the king. Right? Wow! Is he lucky? Can you imagine being at the right place at the right time and they obviously spoke loud so he could hear. You see? You have any idea what kind of coincidence that is? And that's what saves Mordechai, because the king owed him a debt. Next idea, 
So that's bizarre. Next idea is that all of a sudden, on the night before the party, the king can't sleep. You see? Right before the party is supposed to start the next day between Esther, Achashverosh, and Haman, he can't sleep. Okay, which is interesting that he can't sleep. So what does he do? He says, well, bring me the chronicles of Persia. I mean, is this what you want to do to go to sleep? You know? Why would anybody want to read the chronicles of Persia? Doesn't make sense. You see? The next, which is, so that's bizarre. The next bizarre thing is they pick out the right volume. You know how many volumes there are of Persian history? So they picked out a volume, right? They put it in front of Ahasuerus, and it turns to the exact page where it says that Mordechai saved the life of the king. You tell me, what are the odds they would pick out of the, who knows how many volumes of Persian history, chronicles, and it would open to the exact page where Mordechai saves his life. You see? It's incredible. What is, so he reads it, and he says, well, what did we do to this guy? Right? What did we do to this guy? So they say, nothing. You didn't do anything. He saved your life, and you did nothing. What are the odds that a king will not reward a person that saved his life? I've never heard of anything like that. Mordechai saves the life of the king, and he gave him absolutely nothing? That's impossible. But that's what happened. And of course, we know, so he can now give him, right? So the king is thinking about what to give him, and all of a sudden, Haman arrives. But wait a minute, if Haman arrives, Vayove Haman, right? He arrived in the middle of the night, because that's when the king wanted to go to sleep. Why would Haman come to the king's palace to see Ahasuerus in the middle of the night? That doesn't make any sense. You see? Then the king asks him, well, what would, you, what would you give a guy where the king wants to give him honor? So what does Haman say? The most ridiculous suggestion I've ever heard. Every king is always suspicious about everybody that he's afraid that they may kill him and take over their power. This happened all through history, where emperors killed family members because they were afraid of rivals. So what does Haman suggest? To take the horse of the king the garments of the king, the crown of the king, right? Well, that's like the king, you see? Why? Because Haman thought that he's the one that Ahasuerus is asking for how to honor Haman. But why would he give a suggestion that clearly would put in his mind a suspicion to the king that he wants to take over? Because he's wearing the crown. Haman is wearing the crown, because that's who he thinks it's all about. The garments, right? And the horse. What is he out of his mind? You don't arouse the suspicion of the king with that type of suggestion. Yet that's what he does. Makes no sense. And of course, the next thing is that he rewards Mordechai. Uh, what does he do? He has Haman leading Mordechai, which doesn't make sense. Hey, there are a lot of big guys in your kingdom. You've got to have the grand vizier leading this guy just because he saved his life? Fine. But the Grand Vizier, you see, it's incredible, you see. And therefore, of course, that indicates Mordechai's ascendancy and Haman's, obviously, ultimately embarrassment. Now, the amazing thing is that right before that, Haman built the gallows 
which are 100 feet high. Do you imagine how tall that gallows is? Because he wanted everybody in Shushan to see it. You see? So could you imagine what that means? 50 Amasai? Yet that was very important because the gallows were already prepared. So when Ahasuerus said hang them, he didn't have to go and build it. Maybe it would have cooled off. Right? Change his mind. No, it was already built so they could hang Homan immediately. You see? And then, of course, he fell on her lap because she said he wants to kill us all. And he falls on her lap, which, of course, is ridiculous to do that, you know. And then, of course, the king goes, goes in right then and there. And Chavonah says, well, he's already got a gallows. And Homan is hanged. But that's impossible. You don't hang a guy. You know, you, 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 there was no trial. There was nothing. And this guy wasn't a commoner. He was the grand vizier. And then, of course, after that, Mordechai's rise. What am I showing you, right? I'm showing you that the story is a bunch of coincidences that really, when you add them all up together, could never have happened. Whoever heard of something like that? I can understand you have one lucky coincidence or two or three, but not 15, which is what I've just told you. You see, it's incredible. And the answer to that is because the Jews realize that there is no such thing as randomness, that God is behind everything. There is what looks like apparent and what's really going on. And that, by the way, is why we wear costumes. A costume is something which people see you and you look like that person, but behind the costume is the real you, you see. The costumes reveal the anhoga, the behavior of God in the entire creation, especially to the Jews. You see, that the Jews are people where God is always behind them, you see. And what it means also is that God now, he will no longer do open miracles for the Jews. What he does is, the miracles that he does is called miracles of coincidence, where it's one after the other, which I'm sure everybody's experienced in their life, which things which are incredibly should not have happened, happen. But Purim is a story where 15, at least 15 of them happened. So everybody realized that uh, what, what, uh, what Purim really is, is that God is behind everything, you see. And that is why, by the way, we wear costumes, you see. So you have these themes. One, that the Jews realize what the Torah really is. That the Torah is not laws based on mankind's necessity to survive. It is based on righteousness, justice, morality, holiness. That the very laws that mankind needs to survive must also conform to the Kedusha, the holiness of the Torah. So laws have to be holy, not merely appropriate. That's what the Jews realize by the Torah itself, you see. Great. So I've answered basically all the questions, and you now understand what the real theme of Purim really is, you see. And the second theme, of course, is that miracles now happen through coincidence, you see, and God no longer visibly shows who he is, you see. And, uh, okay, that's basically it. Any questions?
Yeah, Rabbi, I was taking a, I was reading in like a book of Zerashim Shon that the rabbis wanted to make Purim Yom Tov, but uh, the Jewish people said no, they didn't want it. They didn't want to have it as a Yom Tov, a holiday that you can't drive. Isn't that not a good thing? Uh, is that not a good thing? What do you mean by not a good thing? Like, I don't know, they want, uh, the rabbis wanted to make it more special, like uh, uh, Rosh Hashanah, Shavuot. It, it's a day that you can't, it, it's a festival that you can't go around in your car and talk you mean that you have is, You mean that you have Isa Malacha? You have Isa Malacha, prohibition of labor. Correct. Yeah, okay, Correct. yeah. Yeah, so Jews, why wouldn't you know? they accept it? Well, I want to tell you something, you know. We already have many days where it's forbidden, and it probably is is that the Jews felt that they don't need this to have joy. Because the essential idea is to have joy because of the understanding. And they felt that you don't need this, you know, in order to uh, enhance the joy of the day. All you need really is a sauda. And they have a Megillah, you read the Megillah twice, you see? That's probably why. And the rabbis said, fine. You know, they cannot, um, rabbis, says, uh, rabbis cannot impose a law that the majority of the congregation cannot adhere to, you see? So that's what they did. Wow. Any other questions? <clears throat> By the way, there's one question I would say, which I think is very important. The question is, why is Purim two days? It should be only one day. Basically, Purim is all about a war, right? With Amalek. They killed out the family, right? They killed out everybody. See? So you make one day. You have a war. You make one day as a celebration for the victory. Why are there two days? Why is there 14? And why is there 15? Anybody got that question? Well, I, I, I did read this. I, I did read this. It was something to do with uh, when Haman picked the date of the lottery, he was so excited that the date that he picked was the 13th because Echad is going against Hashem, who's the one. And the 14th and 15th was something to do to bring down Hashem's name, maybe the Vavhe. Was that it? Yeah, but let, let's, let's keep it simple. Okay? Why? Purim is a day of a victory of war, where they, where they kill their enemies. When you have a war, you, you take one day and you celebrate it, of the victory. You don't celebrate more than one day. Why? But and not they had that, an extra day to fight. They had an extra day the, to fight. The fine, so they so make the 15th Purim for everybody. Look, there's always different days. One community, wars, wars don't end on one day. You know, wars always end on more than one day because you have different communities which fight. But when you want to celebrate that, you pick one day as a victory day for the whole war. You don't need to, uh, so Even if they fought a second day, so what? You pick one day, let's say, pick the 15th, and on the 15th, everybody will commemorate Purim. Maybe that's because one after one word for the No, so let me tell you what the idea So let me tell you what the idea is, which is a very important idea. Because when you destroy an enemy, there are two stages of that destruction. 
The first stage is to destroy the agents or the soldiers. Because an enemy always has many agents and soldiers. So you kill them out. But you don't destroy the enemy, the headquarters. You see. So on the 14th day, they killed all the Amalekites, the Amalekis, all over Persia. Right? But who is the real enemy? It's Homon and his sons, right? And the people who live in Shushan. Because that's the headquarters of evil. You see. So on the 14th day, they killed out all the people, Amalek, the people themselves. But on Shushan Purim, they killed the general. They killed the main guy, you see. Or all the Amalekites that lived in Shushan. And that's where the, what they called the den, the nest of snakes. You see? Therefore, Hazal realized that there's a tremendous merit that God allowed us not only to kill right the the the, uh, the tentacles of the evil but they uh, God allowed us to kill evil itself and that is why you see in history that was the last attempt of Amalek to kill the Jews physically after that you don't hear of Amalek anymore not as that kind of power. what about see Hitler what I'm no what about I'm, I'm, he was a Gilgal I'm talking about a real Amalek a real one a descendant of Amalek, right? Homan was a real Amalek. He was a descendant of Amalek. Hitler may have been a Gilgal, but you got to prove he's a Gilgal, you see? So it's interesting that Purim is really the last time that you find that Amalek tried to destroy the Jews, physically, or the real Amalek, you see? So Chazal realized that they had a tremendous merit, that God not only allowed the Jews to destroy the tentacles, right? But to destroy the head itself, which is Shushan, you see? And therefore there are two days. One is a day where they destroyed, right? The agents, the soldiers, the people connected to Amalek. But the second day, Shushan, is the den, is where all the headquarters, where they all were. There's, uh, there's Haman, there's the, all the relatives of Haman, and, the, you know, and all the, the guys plotting to kill. Because Haman didn't do it alone. He probably, he, he took counsel with all the, Amole, the Amalekites. You see? That is why we have two days. Two stages of destruction of evil. You see? Okay. Any more questions? Um, Rabbi, I have a question. Yeah? Um, okay. So you know how you were saying how... Um, they had the enlightenment and the realization that the, the Torah was really the like real law, and that the social society's laws could always be broken. Yes. Don't we? Are we going through that now? Yes, we are. That's exactly what we are. That's a very good point that you brought out, Amy. That's exactly what it is. That the laws itself can be bent, all based on the craziness of the ruler. Because they're all arbitrary. You know, Trump does one thing, which, are, which really were very good. And this crazy Biden does the reverse. He's undoing all this stuff that Trump did. I mean, you ever have a law where immigrants, 11 million illegals, can now enter? Who knows how many of them have COVID? Who knows how many of them are criminals? They're not being vetted. Nothing. You know, and they're going to take away jobs from blacks. 
They're going to take away jobs. And not only that, America has to support them? Free health? Free education? Is this man out of his mind? Yes, exactly. That's the problem with American law. It's not based on justice or righteousness or holiness. You see? It is based on the whims of the one in charge. Correct. Good point. So, so the next step would be that we have to uh, basically Nasev and Ishmael all over again, but this time with the love like they did in Purim. Exactly. So the essential idea of Purim is to rededicate yourself to the Torah, to realize that this is the only thing that makes sense. And it's not only, you know, it's so therefore to get Oilam Habo, it's not just to do Ben Odom Lamokam between man and God. Right? It's also between man and man. And these are the mitzvahs of the Torah. So it's all ruchni. It's all spiritual. You see? And we have to rededicate ourselves to the Torah Shabbat. That's really what Purim is all about. Torah Shabbat. The oral law. You see? Great. Okay. Great. Yeah, so, so today is the fast. Basically, we should be um, praying uh, for the Geulah, for any personal Geulahs that we need. And then yes. tomorrow should, should be more of a festive. Like, sh- what prayer should we be doing tomorrow? Is there anything specific you recommend us? Well, today is the day of reassessment. What Torah Shabbat Peh really is. And the tshuva should be to rededicate yourself to the mitzvot. You see, in Talimud HaTorah. Tomorrow is the celebration of the victory which will ultimately happen against the enemies of God, which is Amalek and all the other people. So yeah, today is, is a day of reflection, and tomorrow is a day of joy. So, uh, Rabbi, so now they say that Shushan Pudin, because it falls on Shabbat, it has extra holiness Kiddusha. to it. Is that... Yes. Get the cake from him. Well, what they say yeah. is that Purim is now divided into three. You see, three days: it's Friday, Shabbos, and Sunday. They said that's a Israel, very good siman. Very good siman, exactly. Three days of kiddusha, and that's a very good siman, exactly. Here we only celebrate Friday, but in Eretz Israel they would have celebrated on Shabbat, right? But Shushan Purim, but it was on Shabbos, so obviously you can't do things. So they have the Suda, I think also Mishloach um, Manas, I think also on Sunday. It's divided. But the main idea is that Purim, the mitzvot of Purim are now distributed three, three days, which means the Kiddusha is over three days and not just one. Wow. You see? So we should continue praying through, through Sunday. Keep going. Yes. But Purim is a very as they say in English, auspicious day to bring the redemption. Correct. It's a very big day. You know, and I want to tell you something, since you've mentioned Gula. It says in Oz Yoshia, it says there's two lishonis, there are two expressions in Oz Yoshia of redemption. <clears throat> so, there's a Rashi in Yecheskel, Mem Gimel, <coughs> that says that these two days refers to the 
two times that the Jewish people could be redeemed. One is by the Yamsuf, and the other time is by Purim. Because Mordechai really was Sheikh ben Yosef. That's really who he was. And had the Jews all come back with Ezra, right, then he, Ezra, would have been Mashiach ben Yosef at that point. And that would have been the Gula. The problem was, is only 70,000 Jews came back with Ezra. That's all. And the rest decided to stay in Babylon. Therefore, the Gula did not happen. So Purim is really a day of Gula. It really is. It is a day... (coughs) when the redemption could have occurred. Why? Because the tshuva, the repentance of the Jews, of what Torah Shabbat really was, was so great that the Kabbalah Satura had a full tikkun, and therefore the redemption should have happened. But it should have happened when, because everybody would come back with Ezra to build the Beis HaMikdosh, and that should have been the end. But like I say, 70,000 Jews did not, or only came back with Ezra, but Ezra should have been the Mashiach. So Purim really is a day of redemption. Yes. You see? <clears throat> so it could that? be a day where the redemption actually starts. It could be, yes. I, I'm, I, I am personally hoping so, exactly. Tomorrow is a very powerful day for redemption. Could actually so be. What should we do, what should we do what? tomorrow? What should we do? Tomorrow, like I say, tomorrow you celebrate about the fact that uh, it will ultimately there will be a gula that the Jews were saved and they realize what the Torah is. What was that? Any special tiffy laws, prayers? Uh, well, we don't say Hallel because everybody was mm-hmm. physically saved. But, uh, yeah, you could say Tehillim. Yes. Rabbi. You do that. Sure. What was that? that? Tonight, tonight, there's a very special time for us to pray. I think it's 11.59 or 11-something, right before, like, right around midnight. That's when the uh, school children were crying and they were answered. Oh, you mean that? That part of it. Yes, okay. Right. So tonight's a very big night also. Yes, of course. Well, tonight is really Purim, isn't it? Yes. Yes. That's really what it is. Tonight is Purim. Right? Yeah, Purim starts right. tonight, you know, whenever Shki is, and so on, sure, you know. <laughs> anyway, I want to wish everybody a tremendous Purim, tremendous, mm-hmm. uh, you yes. know, uh, happiness, Happy joy. Thank you, you Amen. too. And we, sh- and we should all be Zoycha to welcome the Mashiach, certainly, that the process should begin tomorrow.